Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. My client was a servant, had a servant's heart, and lost the ability to serve through this wreck. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing on this Friday afternoon? I'm good. You know, I like to, I like to wrap up a Friday with something fun like this. And we've got, I guess we've got double the fun today, Steve. Yes. Double the fun, double the guests, double the cases. So, uh, so yeah, it's going to be a good show. Yeah. Yeah. Double the prep work. Just That's kidding. Right. Just <laughs> yeah, kidding. Exactly. We split it up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't up. have a clue what Andy's case is about. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, go ahead. You want to go ahead, uh, uh, Yvonne, and, and tell them who we're going to have on the show today? Yeah, yeah. I gave it away a little bit. So we've got Andy Kahn, my, um, our law partner on the show today. And so we'll get to him in a second. We also have Drew Gilliland on the show. Drew, who is also my neighbor, I think. We've got to talk about this later. So I don't want our many listeners to know exactly where you live, Drew, yeah, but I, mean, I want to talk you, about it. If you put out your okay. address on here, I mean, you're going to have people stalking. <laughs> Stalkers I mean, all the yeah. time. But I, Drew, I um, thank you so much for being on the show today. We've got um, Drew Gilliland. He is a senior trial attorney at Nick Schneider Law Firm, LLC. You can look him up at schneiderlawfirm.com. That's S-C-H-N-Y-D-E-R lawfirm.com. Um, Drew, I have heard so much about you through former um, former guest on the show, Drew Ashby, friend of the pod, um, and oh. he has such nice things to say about you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on. I, I love your podcast. I've listened to it, all the episodes. I, I think it's great what you all are doing, and uh, I'm just honored to be a part of it. Well, thank you. We appreciate you being here. Um let me just tell our listeners a little bit about you if they don't already know you. Um, Drew went to Emory Law School, um, and then he started his legal career as a felony prosecutor down in Florida. Um, tried a bunch of cases to the jury down there. I imagine that was um, really fantastic experience for just kind of getting used to trial. Like, are you even at that point, are you even like nervous when trial starts anymore? <laughs> no, not. I mean, so... I worked at the office. See, I worked at the office that prosecuted Casey Anthony. I don't know if you remember. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So I joined the office uh, right as that finished, and I was very fortunate. We we literally I was in trial literally every week, and um, when I wasn't in trial, we were getting training on how to you know pick a jury, introduce evidence, things like that. Now I only made like a hundred bucks a year, but the experience <laughs> was was wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. Um, well, fantastic experience. And then after that, uh, Drew got more experience on the uh, dark side. He worked yes. um, on the defense side for Fortune 500 companies, um, defending them in personal injury lawsuits. And after seeing that sort of things, he came over, he saw the light, or maybe he saw the light the whole time and just got some of the secrets and strategies. And he's since come over to the plaintiff side. He worked at um, basically the biggest law firm in the country, biggest, uh, personal injury law firm in the country. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, boutique firm. So he's had experience kind of all over the place. Um, and we're going to get more into, uh, the case that Drew's here to talk about, um, with us today. But if you just look at the results that he's gotten recently, I don't know if you would describe this as your specialty, Drew, but I would, 
I, what I, what really stuck out to me was these cases where you've gotten really good settlements and verdicts. And it seems like a lot of them have problems, um, on the damages side, but you've either got somebody who waited a while for treatment or got a big gap in treatment. Yes. Um, I, I'm I'm waiting for the day where I get the perfect case. There's no gaps in treatment. <laughs> There's clear injury, clear light. I, I haven't gotten one yet. So <laughs> I've had to learn how to build up these cases. Well, we we are going to try to get the secrets behind your Jedi mind tricks um, <laughs> shortly. And to You'll do be that, disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Um, to do that, we're going to talk about um, a verdict that you had just recently. Steve, do, should I get into that now or should we introduce our... Why our... don't we introduce our other guests? And, and okay. we should we should tell everybody that our idea behind this show, which is a little different than most of our shows, which is where we you know talk to one or two lawyers who tried one case. Uh, this time we're talking about two different cases. And the reason why we're talking about these cases is these are the types of cases that every plaintiff's lawyer uh, has in, in their in their files. They are you're sort of your everyday road wreck cases. And I don't want to in any way uh, belittle them um, because to your client, these it's always their worst day. Um, and, and it, it's significant to them, but it's the type of file where one of, one of our cases, which we'll talk about is a rear end collision. And one of our uh, cases that we're talking about is one where the defendant driver pulls out in front of another. So very standard sort of road wreck cases with, um, you know, not, not a death, not a, uh, you know, amputation or quadriplegic, but where you have injuries. Uh, and then we want to talk about how in those types of cases, uh, you can do your best to really maximize your damages because for both of these cases, and that's why we chose them. Uh, these are, these are cases where both Drew and Andy just did a fantastic job on really, uh, maximizing the recovery for their client. And, um, and so that's why we think it'll be valuable. Yeah. And Steve, I want to touch on too, you and I were talking about this when we were planning for this episode that, um, what a lot, you know, for our law student listeners or our newer lawyer listeners, what I think a lot of people don't realize, including me, you know, I went right into our firm as my first job really practicing. And almost all of the, all the trials I personally have worked on were all specially set. Um, you know, and so you, you're talking about a whole different skill set and we'll yeah. talk a little bit more about how that played out, especially for, for Andy's case, but you don't know, I didn't even know this was a thing until I started practicing that you might not know if you're starting trial Monday, right, that you right, might yeah. just have to wait and see. Um, and so, but we, you know, a lot of, it's a reality you've got to deal with and there's, um, there's ways to do it well and to, and to make it work. And so that's another reason why I think it's important to highlight a case like this, because there are advantages to these trials that are, that are big, that take a while that you're going to get specially set for versus this kind of thing where it's just suddenly like, Oh, you're go for Monday. Yeah. Just to make sure everybody understands that both, both Drew and Andy are Georgia lawyers. Um, and, um, in Georgia, uh, if you're not specially set, um, then basically you're on the trial docket and you know, there may be 30 cases on that trial docket and they start one through 30. And if one, two and three settle, then, OK, number four is up on the trial docket and you got to be ready to go within couple hours when the judge's uh, clerk calls you. So, um, I don't know if it's done that way everywhere, but it probably is like that. But, um, but that's that, that, uh, so that's a great point that Yvonne brought up, which is that, um, with these types of cases, um, you know, you're generally not going to have special settings. You're, you're, 
you know, you're going to come up on a trial calendar and you might have to just drop everything and get over to the courthouse because you've got everything, uh, you know, your trial is starting. Yeah. So, uh, well, let me, uh, let me tell everybody a little bit about, uh, our law partner, Andy Kahn. So Andy, uh, works for our law firm, Harris Lowry Manton, uh, works with our law firm. He's a, he's a partner and, um, you can look him up at hlmlawfirm.com. That's spelled H L. No, <laughs> um, so, um, but Andy is a fantastic lawyer. He's been with this. I don't, I don't even know how long you've been with this now, Andy, but you've been with us for a while. Um, over, over six years, over, believe over it or six not. Years. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. yeah. A great, I mean, just a great, uh, up and coming young lawyer. I should say he's a double dog. He went to UGA undergrad and law school. Uh, he, and, and he's, uh, he's a legacy too. Cause his, uh, dad went there and played football for UGA. So, uh, you might, uh, understand that Andy's a pretty big Bulldogs fan. Um, maybe none well, bigger. Steve, my, my mom would probably be mad if she listened to this and you didn't mention her too. She was a Georgette as well. So oh, she, nice. she was a, a baton twirler in the band oh, for Georgia. Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, you, you, you definitely have a uh, red and black in the, uh, in the veins. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, Andy has been a, uh, super or a rising star super lawyer for the past five years, every year, um, consecutively, he's very involved in, uh, leadership positions throughout Georgia. Um, it was the education chair for uh, the Georgia trial lawyers and just did a tremendous job on putting together a lot of, um, uh, seminars and, um, and, you know, traveling all over the state. And that, that is a really, it's not an easy job. It's a thankless, thankless job. And Andy, uh, Andy did a fantastic job of that. And he's on the board of the Georgia trial lawyers, uh, and has been part of the GTLA lead program. I know we've talked about that before on the podcast, um, so just, uh, um, a great, uh, great lawyer that we're happy to have on and, uh, and to talk about this, uh, this case that he tried, uh, just last month. So it's, uh, it, these are both of these verdicts are very recent. Drew's case was in April of this year and case was in May of this year. So these are both, both, uh, fresh cases and, uh, and fresh verdicts. So, um, anyway, I thought my welcome. verdict was impressive and then. Andy goes around and, and gets a over a million dollars. Well, uh, fortunately for me, Drew, I, I, we had what was the phantom liability defense in my case. They, they never accepted liability and never explained why they never accepted liability. You actually had a, a, a I think, a defense in your case. So um, I, I'd actually say that's that's more impressive. I will also say, and I, I, I'm looking forward to talking to you about this, Drew, but I mean, you're, you had one of the issues that is always hard for these cases, which, which is not a ton in uh, medical bills. I think it was around 20,000. And a lot of that was chiropractic. Yep. And those can be very tough cases. But I, I have to mention that I saw in your closing uh, that you uh, pointed out how, uh, <laughs> I guess, your witness, your chiropractor witness had said, well, doctors kill 180,000 people a year and chiropractors <laughs> don't kill any. <laughs> Wasn't that great? <laughs> that was his first time testifying. <laughs> right, right. That, like, that was one. I just love that line. <laughs> <laughs> And I actually, you know, awesome. what's funny is reading the, reading the trial transcript, you don't see like what the reaction was, but jurors like actually gasped when he said yeah. that <laughs> and they all like their eyes just went really wide. Right. Right. <laughs> so it, it had an impact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Uh, well, very good. Well, Yvonne, you want to uh, start with Drew's case and then I'll and then I'll give the rundown of Andy's case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we've already sort of talked about it a little bit, so I think um, you all know what to expect. But um, the case is Tyron Allison versus Sharon Sorrell, and it was um, in Douglas County. It was tried in Douglas County, Georgia. Um, and it was kind of, as we sort of mentioned earlier, sort of a um, fairly straightforward um, car wreck case, but you did have some um, liability issues to deal with. Um, in July 2018, Drew's client was um, driving on Georgia 61 in Douglas County, and the defendant driver was approaching a stop sign on... I thought it was so interesting that this road was called Ledbetter Road because I have seriously only seen that word one place, and it's in the Pearl Jam song. <laughs> is, 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 is Ledbetter... I, so I looked it up, and it's like a, it's like a lead worker or something. It's an old word for like somebody who worked in lead. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. Okay. It's not part of, it's <laughs> yeah. not part of the case. <laughs> this is the um, level. This is the level of depth we go to on this podcast. <laughs> we get into uh, why do they name the roads what they do? Uh, I believe they mean old wooden ship. Yeah. <laughs> You're making that podcast money now. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what else am I going to do? Yeah, gotta, right. <laughs> just, just besides spend my uh, podcast sponsor dollars. Um. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So. Um, back to the point. So the defendant driver, um, had approached a stop sign that crossed over 61 and, you know, according to the defendant stop looked both ways, but in any event, um, push pulled out in traffic in front of the plaintiff who was traveling on 61. So the plaintiff hits the defendant's vehicle. Um, but that's because the defendant pulled in front of the plaintiff. Um, but some of the defenses in the case were that this was a, um, sort of a, a, a limited sight distance where this crossing was and that the plaintiff was driving uh, too fast over the speed limit of 35 mm -hmm. miles an hour. Um, and so it was really the plaintiff's fault that the, that um, he couldn't avoid the defendant. Um, as we touched on one of the other tricky things in the case was just that the um, you know, the, the injuries are, are what you would expect from a car wreck like this, but can make it hard to get a good damages award when you're forced to try the case. Um, you know, you had a lot of bruising, neck and lower back pain, um, things like that. And as Steve mentioned, the, the actual um, medical bills were around 20000 they were $20,457 and lost wages in the amount of $1,357. Um, so you're not working with a lot on specials, uh, but Drew was able to get a verdict of $312,000. And that's $292 for the pain and suffering, which is huge um, considering what your actual specials were. Um, he was awarded $20,000 for the past medical, or I should say his client was awarded. Um, so that was a total of $312,000. His client was found 30% at fault, which um, in Georgia, that's okay. You just reduce the verdict by that amount. Um, so that amount was reduced um, that 30% was taken out. That was, yeah. um, but, um, tremendous result. That's a win. Um, so after that, it's what two, uh, 218,400. 
You got it. Okay. You know the facts better than me. And one thing we'll we'll talk about some more is that not only that, but they sent in in many states are like this, but they sent an offer of settlement for, if I remember right, like $35,000. And so we'll now be able to, and maybe you've already done this, I don't know, uh, but move for uh, their attorney's fees and costs for exceeding their uh, offer of settlement. Yes. So so that will significantly increase the, uh, the recovery. We hope so. Yeah. All states appealing now, though. So right, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's talk about Andy's case. The name of Andy's case that he tried in Cobb County, uh, uh, Cobb County State Court, was it? Uh, yes, Cobb County State Court uh, was Wilson versus Evans, and this is Anthony and Margaret Wilson versus the estate of Stephanie Evans, which also adds a, a wrinkle that will add that. Miss Evans did not die as a result of the collision at all, but she did die uh, while the litigation was pending. So that by the time the case went to trial, there's no defendant there. Um, you know, uh, it's just it's just their estate. But um, in any event, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wilson were were uh, driving on Holly Springs Road. They were at the intersection of the um, of Post Oak. Well, now I can't read my own writing, but it's a uh, post Oak road or something like that. Um, but uh, they stopped for a, for a red light. And I think there was some dispute here, although it, we'll talk about this more that uh, by the time the case came to trial, only uh, Andy was uh, or Andy side plant, the plaintiffs were putting on evidence, but um, that they had stopped for a red light in traffic and that um, the defendant driver, Miss Evans was distracted maybe by looking in the rear seat for uh, at her child or, or if her child was behind and basically just ran into the back of, um, of the Wilson's vehicle. Uh, and then somehow uh he, Mr. Wilson was checking on his wife uh, to see if she was okay. And then they get rear-ended again. So somehow they were rear-ended twice in there. Um, and, uh, basically, uh, Andy tried this case. The injuries were mainly to Mr. Wilson. He was the more significantly injured of him. And, and I'll let Andy talk a little bit about, uh, his client, but his client was an accomplished tennis player, um, was 76 years old. Um, so that's a, um, you know, retired, not working. Um, so there's no lost wages claim, had, uh, a neck injury and got a, uh, cervical disc arthroplasty at the C three, four and C five, six, uh, and, um, had about $73,000 in medical bills. Uh, and Andy, um, uh, tried this case, uh, last month and, uh, the total verdict, uh, for this, which includes the loss of consortium for uh, Margaret Wilson, was uh, nine hundred thousand for Tony Wilson and three hundred twenty-five thousand for um, the loss of consortium claim for Stephanie Wilson for a total verdict of uh, one million two hundred twenty-five thousand, uh, which is just a, a tremendous verdict for, um, especially for the case. Um, and, um, and and not and not bad for a guy who was wearing probably a pretty wrinkled suit by the end. Yes, there. yes, yes. Yeah. It's, it's funny, actually. I, and I, I told my, my paralegal this joke before I did it in closing, because I never know when I'm going too far. But I, when I got up to, to start my clothes, uh, because I didn't expect the trial to last this long, I was reusing clothing. And so my, the first thing I told the jury in clothes was, uh, that I was wearing dirty underwear. So uh, <laughs> nice. I actually got a kick out of that. Relatable. 
Great. Just, just turn, <laughs> I mean, not to turn, me. I would turned do around that, but... or inside out or <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> nope, just old fashioned dirty right, animal. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> so Andy uh, was a victim of one of those things where he was sort of already in town, wasn't really sure if the case was going to go. It did, and then it went on a lot longer than he thought. So he was kind of stuck with the clothes that he had. Steve actually mentioned that I was the the uh, education chair for GTLA, our our biggest and last event under my uh, uh, co-chair um, time was the Thursday and Friday before this trial that started on Monday. And so I was already in Atlanta, fortunately, but that, that meant um, I was staying in Atlanta, you know, from, from Savannah where I live. Yeah. Oh, well, we should also mention that his trial finally ends and we have firm photos the next day. And so he has to wear, <laughs> still has to wear those clothes for the firm photos. I felt bad for you guys standing next to me. <laughs> yeah. well, if you, if you notice the photo, Andy, I'm on the, all the way on the other side. <laughs> right, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you notice how no one ate lunch that was sitting near you? <laughs> right, right, exactly. You were sitting next to me, I think, Yvonne. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. 
So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. Where I really wanted to talk about the, in these cases was the damages. But I, I do want to hit with, with Drew uh, quickly about the liability issue because, um, you know, in, in you had a person that pulled out in front of your client. There was a bit of a hill. I, I, I looked at the pictures um, and then they claimed your client was speeding. Um, but uh, I couldn't tell if they really put any on any evidence of speeding other than maybe what their own client testified to, but talk about how you, um, how you handled some of the liability aspects of, of your case and the fact that they were, they were claiming your client was driving too fast. Yeah, sure. So, um, the, this was kind of weird. They were on Georgia 61, the speed limit is 55, but as you approach this intersection, there's a warning sign and the speed is, it says 35 miles an hour. So, our client testified at his deposition that he was going in like in the fifties and the, but there's that sign before the intersection that says 35 miles an hour. So their whole argument was that, you know, he disregarded this warning sign. He was traveling too fast given the circumstances of this intersection. And, uh, and so that, that's what their argument was that if he had been going 35 miles an hour, this wreck never would have happened. And I, I think I saw, and, and I think this is a really good tactic that um, it, that you asked the defendant during her deposition, maybe whether or not she took any responsibility for the collision, and yeah. she blamed your client one hundred percent. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so, that, that was my colleague Nick Schneider who took that deposition. Yeah, I mean, so from a from a credibility standpoint. You know, to not for her when she clearly, you know, that your client has the right of way, she clearly pulled out in front of him and to not take any fault whatsoever uh, is just an effective tactic to uh, to, you know, put up your client versus her for, versus her. Yeah. And, and the way I actually so there was a strategy to that because I knew she would have to agree with her deposition testimony. So I, I structured my cross, although at the time when I was doing the cross, I was thinking, wow, this is I'm doing a good job. And then I get the transcript back and I'm like. I, that was a terrible cross. I, I should have done, I should have asked so many different questions, but you know, hindsight's 2020. Um, but I always get that feeling when I get a deposition transcript back that I think I did a good job and, you know, I read it and I'm like, Oh no, that's, that's not very good. Um, but I did, I structured the cross in a way that I basically out, I basically set up all the facts to show why she was at fault. And then at the end I asked her, so would you still agree that he's 100% at fault? And this is something else you don't pick up on the transcript. She like made a deer in headlights look because she kind of saw that, you know, she just admitted all these bad facts. And she sort of looked ridiculous saying that our client was 100% at fault. And she didn't want to say it. So I had to, I, I believe I had to approach her with her deposition transcript to remind her that she said that. And, and so she, fortunately for us, she stuck by that. Yeah, I, th I think that's also one of those things. I think we all read our transcripts and hate them, or I, I know that I certainly do. Um, yeah. But, you know, I also think what you pointed out is is a, is an exact reason why you can't do that, right? Which is that the transcript doesn't convey what it's like when you're in the room and what the vibe was and whether you're, 
jury's getting antsy or what the witness is doing, you know? So you, so don't beat yourself up. Don't beat oh, yourself I up. Right, right, right. <laughs> I won't don't, do that. Don't be a, um, a, don't be a sore winner. Like, uh, yeah. we've, we've been talking about <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. other episodes we, of the pod. Was, yeah. Our last episode. So, yeah. um, well, uh, so, you know, what, what I really would like to focus on, uh, mostly in this is, is sort of the approach to damages in this case, in these cases. Um, and, and I'd like to hear each of you describe because, uh, you know, Andy used uh, one tactic in his trial with regard to the medical expenses and Drew, I, I actually don't know in yours, were the medical expenses put into evidence? They were. Yeah. Okay. And it's, we, we put them into evidence because we had that offer of judgment for 35,000. Right. So really the goal was just to beat the offer of judgment. Right. Right. Well, um, well, Andy, why don't you start with, uh, you know, sort of how you approach this case and maybe even, cause I did not do your client justice on talking about what kind of guy he was. Right. Um, so maybe give a little bit of background about your client, uh, Tony Wilson, and then, and then about how you decided to approach the damages in this case. Yeah, sure. And, and, and just, you know, um, I think there's an old adage that, you know, great plaintiffs make great cases and, and that could not be more of the truth here. Uh, Tony and Margaret both were just fantastic people. I, I got to know them really well. Obviously we, we litigated this case for four years, uh, part, partly due to COVID, but, um, also because they just weren't evaluating this case where they needed to be. Um, but yeah, Tony and Margaret were both great and, uh, really just, I, I think, um, Drew I actually heard Drew speak about his case recently. And he said something that I thought was really interesting. He said, he, one of his main approaches to trial, and this was one of mine too, was he really wanted to be friends with all the jurors and he wanted to engage with all the jurors. And, and while I, I agree a hundred percent with that, one thing that I really wanted to do was to make sure that my clients and the damages witnesses were also engaging with the jurors. And, um, and so I, I, you know, I, I took a lot of efforts to make sure that they were going to be able to do that. And, um, you know, one of the jurors that I spoke to after trial, um, you know, I asked him when he made up his mind and I was hoping he would say in your great opening statement or, yeah, you really sold me on closing arguments. <laughs> he said it was after your client testified. And while I think it's important for opening statements and, and, and voir dire for, you know, setting up, you know, framing these issues and making sure that the jury understands what you're about to prove to them, you still got to prove it to them. And they still have to connect with your client because if they don't, you know, the, the jury's not awarding 1.225 million because I'm a great lawyer. Uh, they, they love my clients and uh, they did a really great job connecting. And, and I, I think the jury just really, they were able to understand things that, you know, going in, like you mentioned, 73 grand in, in medical bills, we didn't introduce those, uh, you know, and, and thank you, Steve. That was something I, I spoke to you a lot about. Uh, you know, I was I was on the fence about that because, you know, that's not an insignificant amount of money. Um, but I, I really felt that this case was a seven figure case. And I didn't think that it was ever going to get there with with being anchored down to a number like seventy three thousand dollars. So. Uh, that's why I chose not to introduce the medical bills in the case. And really, honestly, you know, when I, 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 I obviously talked to my clients about that um, before trial and I said, listen, there's this isn't my ideas. I don't want to introduce these medicals. And, you know, it's a risk because you're leaving potentially some money on the table. But I said, I think it's a bigger risk to introduce them because this case isn't about your medical bills, uh, Tony and Margaret. It's about all of these sort of 
uh, what seems subtle, right. Until it happens to you, these, these things that are really important to your life that you can no longer do. And we can get into that in a little bit if you want. And I, I also had great clients because they said, absolutely. We trust you hundred percent. Um, we hired you for a reason, you know, we, we want to go with your strategy. And that was really impactful to have their confidence, uh, to just to, to, to go do that. Yeah. And it, it really does, uh, come back to this concept of anchoring, which we've talked about on the show before, but you know, you can anchor up or you can anchor down. So a lot of times, you know, when we're trying cases, we want to try and anchor, uh, up, you know, and so you'll talk about, you know, what the value of certain things are and there's all kinds of ways to do that. But, um, and, and one thing that's important, and I know Andy's going to speak about this is, is make sure that when you're anchoring up, you don't surprise the jury with that, do that right from the beginning and make sure they're ready for that. So that when you're getting in closing that, uh, they're not for the first time hearing, uh, some, you know, large number that they may also be uncomfortable with. You need to start right beginning. Um, and so, and, and so the, the thought that Andy had there was uh, about not putting the medical expenses in is that it, that might anchor the, uh, the verdict down. Um, but <clears throat> there's, there's two ways to do this. And, and so Drew, I'd, I'd love to hear your, um, your take on how you presented damages in this case, because you, you all made the decision to put the medical expenses in and you, you just explained that part of that was because of the offer of settlement, but talk a little bit about how you approach the, the damages in this case. Right. So I did a per diem argument and I did, uh, uh, so he's 39 years old. So we just said he has 40 years left to live. Um, and we did, we asked for pain and suffering damages for five hours a day, no, $5 an hour, four hours a day for 365 days times 40. And that came out to 292,000. And, um, and then with the, the medical bills, the other 20 that made it, that took it up to 312. So the jury actually gave us everything we asked for. Um, and I, I think to Andy's point that we had a really great client. He was just a very likable guy. He, he was, he, I was a little concerned because, um, the defendants was a very small lady. Um, she was like maybe five feet, uh, in heels and, um, and, you know, was just, she was, she was just really small. Our guy, you know, he played football, he boxed, he was a big guy. And so I was, uh, I was a little worried that like, well, the defendant wasn't injured, but our guy was, and she's so much smaller. Of course his, he took the brunt of the impact, but, um, but he was just a really nice guy. And I think the jury saw that, that, you know, he's, he, uh, he didn't, he went, he went right back to work after the wreck. He has three kids. They're all on honor roll. And, you know, some people just don't have the luxury of going to doctor appointment after a doctor appointment. You just have to buck it up and, you know, deal with the pain. And, and so that, that's the message that we try to convey about him is that, you know, he's a working guy. He doesn't have the option to go to a doctor whenever he wants. And, um, you shouldn't hold that against him. I mean, if anything, he should be, uh, rewarded for that. It seems so, like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Drew. No, go, go. Oh, well, I just was going to say, it seems like especially a good approach to take with reading your, um, the transcript of jury selection, um, was a little rough. Um, I, I don't <laughs> think I've ever read one where there were so many, jurors speaking. I mean, it, it was kind of great, right? Because there was, I don't think I've ever seen insurance on 
on like so many pages um, <laughs> for a voir dire transfer because you had so many people, it seemed like to me anyway, in your case, to, you know, they were saying, oh, you know, I don't think we should be here because, um, you know, I it, this stuff should get worked out with a settlement before the trial. Or, yeah. you know, people talking about their experience with insurance companies. You had a lawyer for Aetna or somebody. I mean, yeah. how... Is that, I mean, reading it, I was like, wow, this is kind of a lot of stuff that's been thrown out there to this jury about insurance. But I wasn't sure how how you felt, especially with your um, experience. Yeah, so I, I I try to get it out there. I mean, my, my goal in jury selection is to try to be, look, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I I don't know how to pick a jury, okay? I don't know. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest about that. I don't know how. The only thing I know how to do is to connect with the jury. So that that's my only goal. I just want to connect with them. And I just want them to know that, like, I try to keep it lighthearted. Like, I always, I always start my jury selection with, so who here, you know, was excited when they got their jury summons? Raise your hand. And it's, it's stupid. It's not funny, but people laugh. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to keep it lighthearded. Did, but did I do anybody raise and, their hand? Did, did yeah, someone actually did. Yeah. yeah. And I think she actually made it as a juror. <laughs> so her, her, I was making dreams come true that day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and, uh, but so I think I eventually, you know, I, I, I try to go right to the heart of it that look, I mean, this is a personal injury case, you know, that, and I, I try to treat them with respect. I'm like, you know, look, we all live in the real world here. You know, he's going to get money if we get a favorable verdict who here thinks that he might have an incentive or somebody might have an incentive to exaggerate. And I think that's what kind of led into all the insurance questions. And there were quite a few people there that either worked in insurance or had, or knew somebody that worked in insurance. And so they all had the stories about, you know, them hiring investigators to follow people and, you know, catching people who are pretending to be injured. And so all that stuff came out in jury selection um, and I, th I think I ended up using some of that in closing because I, I said, you know, look, they, if they thought our client was faking, they would have hired an investigator. They didn't bring one in. So that's great. I mean, that's a great way to use that to advantage because, you know, again, I think it, it, it's right. It can be a good thing for them to be thinking about insurance and where the money comes from, especially since you, it's not like you did that, right. They're the ones who immediately jumped to that. Um, yeah. but it also seemed like, you know, you did have so many people talking about frivolous lawsuits or the investigative thing that it seemed like a really good strategy for you to, you know, it was a very reasonable ask in what you asked for, especially with pain and suffering and, and very reasonable why it could almost work to your advantage in some ways that his medical bills weren't higher, right? Because he was just had to get back to life. Yeah. I think yeah. it's interesting. It, it, I just, uh, I had a similar experience, uh, during, during voir dire, uh, Drew, I had a, an insurance adjuster who, when you, when you, uh, look up insurance adjuster in the dictionary, this guy's pictures in there. I mean, truly yeah. <laughs> the most insurance adjusty person I've ever seen. And, um, you know, I, I asked, you, you kind of get scared to, you, you don't want to go too far because he might say some things that are bad because he's obviously going to be disfavorable, but I kind of leaned into it. I wish I'd have done it more, but one of the things that he said that, um, you know, was, I asked him, the most valuable claim he had ever seen. He said it was a million dollars. And I said, Oh really? What type of case? And it was this like terrible death case of like a 25 year old. And it just made the juror, the, the rest of the jury pool, I think really reacted in a negative way towards him. So at that point, huh. anything he says seems unreasonable. So I tried to lean into some of those things that 
maybe a juror might think is unreasonable at times if they don't have much context, but um, he, he actually, I think, you know, helped a lot uh, get the rest of the jury pool um, kind of on my side in a way. That's great. So, I like that. I'm going to steal that from you. <laughs> so and, Andy, along those lines, I know you in your, in your talk a little bit about your jury selection when you were sort of getting the jury ready for what kind of numbers you might ask for and what their reaction was. And then I guess, what was his reaction to that? Do you remember him answering that question? Uh, yeah, you, you know, so, so first of all, and, and, and thank you, Steve, actually, before I tried this case for challenging me and, and you really helped me believe that this case was seven figures in, in our talks about it because it was, and, and the jury obviously ultimately decided that, but, um, yeah, so, I anchored my, my, my verdict at $1.5 million. And, and at the time I, I really had no idea what I was going to ask for. I, I knew that I wasn't, you know, I knew I was going to ask for something, you know, that started with a, you know, million dollars, you know, somewhere in that range. And so, you know, when I asked the question and, and we had a great judge too, judge Bruton in, in Cobb County state, um, who let us try our case. You know, some judges won't let you get into that. I think it's absolutely, you know, you should be able to understand certain biases. So I asked the question, um, you know, who here, um, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the evidence uh, that could not return a verdict for at or more than $1.5 million. And that's the number I used. I, I probably said $1.5 million 30 to 35 times. Um, and, you know, there, there was a juror actually, uh, the, the insurance adjuster didn't raise his hand on that one. Interestingly enough, even though the best case he'd ever seen was this terrible wrongful death case that was only worth a million dollars, but he didn't raise his hand. So I didn't really get an opportunity to, to work it up for a cause strike, but there was a, a little old lady that, um, that did raise her hand and, and, you know, there was a, probably three people that raised their hand, but the little lady, no matter what, you know, I, I gave her certain hypotheticals and what if this happened and what if that, and she just said, no, it's just too much money. And I said, that's fair. And, and thank you for your honesty. And the other two that raised their hands, one of them came around and said, okay, maybe under some circumstances I could. And then the third guy, I think didn't understand my question initially. And he was like, Oh, I think $1.5 million is way too little. And, and so um, that was, that was kind of funny. Um, we, we got the, the little lady actually struck for, for cause on that question. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, that, that was very important. I, I did that. I anchored it at 1.5 in, in jury selection. And then I, in opening, I said it would be in the millions of dollars. Again, I really just didn't know what it was going to be until I heard the evidence myself um, and ultimately asked for, for even more than that. So. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. 
Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. Drew, one thing I you you said uh, was that you, I think you asked for $5 an hour for four to five uh, hours a day. Mm-hmm for your client. And, and I'm, I'm getting, I'm just wondering how you came up to that. And then, and then also, this is a two part question. Um, <laughs> the, uh, also on that, I, I also heard you talk, uh, 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 earlier, as I saw you talk earlier about how you made a decision not to ask for past pain and suffering. Um, so talk about those two things, how you came up with that number and then the, the decision not to ask for past pain and suffering. Yeah, well, I've never been asked a two-part question before, yeah, Steve, right. so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the, uh, I, you know, that was just a, an on-the-fly decision about not asking for past pain and suffering. And I, I, I really, the only thing I was thinking, because I, originally I was going to ask for over 800000 but I, I talked to my colleagues and they encouraged me not to do that, which is probably the right call. I also got to know the bailiff and he said I, would, I wouldn't ask for more than three. Um, I, I, but I asked for three twelve, so, uh, yeah, keep wrong. Um, and, uh, uh, but yeah. So what was the question again? Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a two part question. So no, yeah. the, uh, um, the other part was the, the, how you came up with $5 an hour for four to five, uh, hours a day. And, and I should add to that, that I, I think I also saw you say like your client, he, he was sort of, um, it's like a, he was a big guy, like you said, and he had never described his pain as being more than like a four or five on a yeah. scale of 10. Um, yeah. So we we use all that. I got that because he basically said that he experiences pain every day for a few hours. Um, it, 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 it varied day to day, but I just figured, you know, uh, four hours a day, that's less than ha- that's like half a work day. So that sounds reasonable. And then the five dollars an hour is less than minimum wage. But honestly, what I did is I had a calculator and I was trying to figure out what would put me in the 300 range. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, just being honest, that, that's, that, that's what I did. And yeah. so I, that's how I justified it though. And, and, uh, and I just, I, I had a board, I had a board of the, of the pain and suffering, you know, jury charge and how you have mm-hmm. the 11 categories. Yeah. And so what I did is I just said, look, this is the only thing we're asking for future pain and suffering. I kind of played it off. Like, you know, look, the past is what it is. Let's just worry about the future. But here we're not asking for damages on, you know, uh, shock of impact. But then I would talk about how he did experience that. So like, of course he had a, you know, he, he was, he was shocked by the impact. His car went airborne. He ended up in a ditch. Um, 
but I'm not asking for any money on that. And, and then I, and I go through all 11 categories talking about how we, you know, we have evidence to support asking for damages for all those categories, but we're not asking for it because we want to be reasonable. And, uh, so my, my goal is really, I just wanted the number to sound reasonable at, uh, to the jury and that, that was it. And the, and then the issue with your client only describing his pain as a four or five, which can be, uh, both a, uh, uh, you know, an obstacle and a benefit because on the one hand, uh, you know, he's not describing his pain as being, you know, a 10, yeah. uh, but he's, but I, I would think that maybe that makes him a lot more credible with the jury that he's not trying to over-exaggerate his symptoms, but ha- just talk about how you dealt with that, um, that issue. Yeah. So we leaned into that and and I really hammered that on closing that, you know, look, if, if he was malingering or if he was exaggerating, he would be saying 10 out of 10 pain, nothing helps, nothing's getting better. He's up here crying and wailing about how unfair the world is. He's not doing that. He's just being honest. And, uh, and so that, that we just, we just leaned into it. Yeah. Well, so Andy, talk a little bit about in your case, the, the one thing I wanted to make sure that we talked about on here is that your client was 76 years old. Yeah. 76 uh, at, at the time of the wreck, 82 in, at the time of uh trial. Right. So talk about how you, uh, uh, built the damages for him. Um, you know, the, the, the jury awarded, uh, 900,000. I think, um, I, I can't remember if you put it into evidence, but I think if you went to the annuity and mortality table that Georgia has, he had a little bit more than five years of life expectancy left. Yeah, it was 5.92. And I really struggled with that. And, and, um, I, at first I really, even when we were adding it as a, a potential trial exhibit, I did it and, t- and told my paralegal, we probably won't use it because I didn't anticipate using it. But, you know, the night before closing, or I guess not the night before, two nights before, uh, when I decided to introduce it into evidence, uh, because I did want to use it in my closing, it was because I, I wanted to at least give the jury some number to be able to to multiply with. And, and actually that's in the, that's what they ended up doing. Um, I wish it would have been more years on his life, obviously, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, uh, the, the, my, my, my probably, and you've heard this story before, Steve, but, um, the night before, uh, trial began, I was at the, this hotel in, in Marietta, Georgia in Cobb County. And I was having dinner at the bar and having a glass of wine and, um, you know, Cobb is usually a, a very white conservative venue. It's it's changing a bit, but uh, certainly that still was the case on, on my jury of, of which ended up being 10 white people, nine men. But a, a, a woman from um, San Antonio, Texas, was just happened to sit next to me, white woman, Catholic woman, uh, got to talking with her a little bit. Uh, she, you know, told me of some of her conservative views. And I, I said, can I basically try my case to you right now. And and that's exactly what I did. And, you know, I I had, I definitely knew the case, right? I prepared, I knew the facts. I knew a lot about my clients. I'd spent a lot of time with them and understanding what really made them tick. I spent a lot of time. Again, I talked about some of those subtle things, the subtle aspects that they're, they're only subtle when you're taking them for granted, but when you lose them, they're not so subtle anymore. And so I was able to tell her about that. And, um, it's funny because I've been thinking about this case for four years and didn't come up with as good of an idea as she came up with on the spot. And it was this, it was, you know, my, my client's whole life, especially being up there in age, you're not working anymore, right? You're not, there's no lost wages. Um, you know, he's in his golden years, but really 
um, what he loved to do was to help others and to serve others. Uh, he was very involved in the special Olympics for tennis, which he was formerly a professional tennis player and then a tennis pro. Uh, he loved helping his, his two sons and all of their projects. One's a sculptor. He would lift those things with him. And, uh, his other one liked to do construction projects. He helped out on those sorts of construction projects. And, um, she said this to me, this, this, um, random stranger at the bar that, um, my client was a servant had a servant's heart and lost the ability to serve through this wreck. And uh, that's something I used in opening. I didn't use it as much in closing, but I used it in opening statements. And, you know, it just goes to show you that, um, you know, we, we get so into the weeds on these cases and think we know best, but when you get a fresh set of eyes on it, a non-lawyer, especially someone who was going to look like my jurors, uh, who was going to think like my jurors, came up with this brilliant idea um, that I think really made a, a huge impact. And, and, you know, my client, another thing too, he was 76 at the time of the wreck. And I said this to the jury too, but he was not 76 at the time of the wreck, right? He was, he was in age, but he wasn't in energy. He wasn't in spirit. Uh, he really wasn't physically. I mean, he's doing headstands at yoga before this. And uh, afterwards he, he really, uh, he was on the sidelines and that was, that was a theme I used in, in closing as well. Yeah. Did you buy that lady a drink? I did. Good for you. <laughs> she, she was drinking a margarita. If I, if I recall, <laughs> right, she, right. she deserved it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah well, I, I really like that concept and we've talked before um, both on the show and, and Andy, uh, you and I have talked about how just, you know, we really with, with people who are in their, in their golden years, you need to start thinking about those cases differently because I mean, really that's the time of life that you should, you, you know, all of your work is behind you, your time where you had to support the family and raise your family is behind you. This is the time you should be able to enjoy, do the stuff you love. And if, and if giving back is what you want and this, he actually had the time and, and uh, was able to give back. And then all of a sudden that was taken away and, and his love of playing tennis that was taken away. So just sort of that, you know, that, that, you know, when you're at that age, I mean, that's the time when you really get to just enjoy life. Yeah. And I think one thing too, and, and it's, those points are all exactly right. And one thing though, that was really important was how do you, you can't just talk to the jury about that in the stratosphere, right? You have to get into a lot of the specifics and that's Steve, something you and I talked about as well, but you know, there's like, uh, and, and one juror actually told me this was the most impactful thing he heard the entire trial, his yoga instructor testified. And first of all, she was just a fantastic witness, very likable, personable jury, really, I think engaged with her. But, um, she told this little story about how Tony, you know, loved, yoga and would show up early every single time he'd be waiting in the parking lot with his wife for yoga. They did yoga together. And when the yoga instructor, younger, you know, more agile, stronger yoga instructor will get there, Tony would immediately, you know, run to her door and get her yoga mat and anything else she had and, and carry it in for her. And, you know, even though the case wasn't about her, she talked about how that day they were actually driving to yoga uh, when they got hit and when they didn't show up that morning, how worried she was. And then after the fact, when he, you know, he was able to get back to some level of yoga, but not the same. And she just had this sweet little story about how he wasn't, he wasn't there to carry her yoga mat, which she didn't need that. Um, but it just, it just demonstrated what type of a guy he was. And I, I think little things like that really made the difference. Uh, they're, they're really not that little, but 
um, you know, uh, jurors can relate to, to those sorts of stories. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, well, uh, another issue that I think both of you dealt with and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, it, the defenses of your case. So in Georgia, uh, if the defense doesn't put up any evidence, then they can attempt to steal. They, so I should explain, uh, normally the plaintiff gets to go give the first part of the, uh, uh close, then the defendant goes, and then the uh, plaintiff gets to give the last part of the close, the rebuttal. Uh, but if the defendant doesn't put in any evidence and there's some other, uh, requirements there, then, um, they can then try and argue to take the first and, and last part of the close. And I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was at least attempted in both of your cases, or at least thought about in both of your cases. Am, am I right about that, Drew? Um, they, they ended up entering evidence. I, what Andy did was really cool. I, I can't wait for the audience to hear about that. That, that was, that was amazing. Um, but they, they did enter evidence. However, I did get to use that against the defense somewhat. I mean, cause at, at, at the end they said, well, he said, you know, the, the plaintiff didn't introduce any chiropractic, any of the chiropractic records. Why do you think that is? So when I got up to do the rebuttal, I basically said, well, I'm, I'll confess. I, I just, I, it was a lawyer trick. I didn't interview. I didn't introduce the chiropractor records because I wanted him to do it. So I would get to close last. And I was just, I was just upfront with the jury about it. Um, so I don't, I don't know what impression that made, but. Yeah, well, I was just wondering it because I saw that in your clothes. That's why I thought maybe it was an issue uh, that, um, you know, that because they, they since they put in the they so they put the chiropractic records in themselves. You did. Yeah. 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 OK. OK. Now, they also called the defendant to testify, but I just right. kind of had to <clears throat> make a. To make a comment about the defense attorney. I get it. I get it. Uh, well, and, and so Andy talk about in your case, and I guess we should talk about two things because normally when this happens, they will, it, they will admit liability or at least the, 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 uh, primary elements of liability and then may dispute on damages or something like that. They didn't do that in your case. And I know that you think that had a big impact in your case, but then also talk about how you prevented them from uh, taking your closing argument or taking your, the first and last close. Yeah. So they, they never accepted liability. I, I still have not heard the reasoning behind that. They just simply stated that they were not going to accept liability. Um, and, and one of the slides I put up in my closing, um, it was actually, I think the second slide after the picture of my clients was your honor, we have no witnesses, um, which was the, the quote of the defense attorneys, obviously when they did not put up any evidence in the case, um, and, and the whole, you know, obviously I think that was very, I, th I think that was impactful for the jury because they, you know, I had one juror tell me he kept waiting for the defense, like for their big reveal. Like he kept expecting that, you know, maybe I wasn't giving him the whole story and then nothing happened and it just confirmed everything he believed before. But, um, but yeah, so the, their entire goal, it was clear from the get go that they were not going to, uh, put up any, or we're going to attempt to not put up any evidence because they wanted to steal the clothes because we all know how impactful it is to have the first and last primacy and recency are very important factors. You want to be the first and the last word to a jury. And so their, their whole strategy was to, to have that happen. And so the day before closing, when we, we closed evidence, the judge dismissed the jury for the day and kept us a little bit later. And, um, and he asked uh, both sides, he said, well, about how long do you think you have for closing arguments? And I, I had anticipated this. I'd written a brief the night before, but I said, well, um, your honor, my first closing, uh, my first close, I have about 15 minutes and my second, I have about 20. 
And they were all up in arms. They jumped up and they said, whoa, wait, we, what are you talking about? We get to go first and last. We didn't introduce any evidence. And the judge says, Mr. Khan. And I, I said, judge, I, I haven't heard a motion. Um, maybe I missed it. And, and they said, oh, yeah, we, we file, you know, this motion under uh, there's a, a Georgia code section that basically gives them the right to do these under certain circumstances. And um, so I kind of laid the trap for that. They they move under that motion. And then I said, OK, well, here's my response brief. And I, I handed them a copy and I handed the judge a copy of the brief that uh, briefed the law on the issue. And uh, the judge basically asked them, do you all have, you know, do you all have any response to this? And they said, judge, we hit, we didn't have the opportunity to brief it. And, and the point there was, well, it's your motion. Um, if you wanted to brief your motion, you could have, and you didn't. And, but we anticipated, obviously they were going to file that. So we were prepared, but ultimately the issue that it came down to and what the judge ruled on, which was absolutely, I think the right ruling and what the law says is, um, the, the, the outset of trial, we stipulated, stipulated in the PTO even before trial that we were going to jointly, uh, uh, tender the medical records to streamline the case. And there were things in that medical record that were good for me, uh, and my clients, there were things in that medical record that were bad, like degenerative disc disease and, you know, prior stuff, you know, not a ton of it, but a little bit of it. And so that's ultimately what the judge decided was they, we, we jointly introduced that evidence. And because we jointly did, that means they also introduced evidence and they were unable to, to quote unquote, steal the clothes. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. I, you know, it makes me think, um, Drew, that, that like, sometimes when I'm, I'm, my parents will hear me talking about, uh, something with our jobs that I think is really boring, like not the cool stuff we get to do, but I mean like the really boring stuff. And my parents are like really interested in it. And I'm like, (laughs) I don't like, you know, like what I think is just like the very dull stuff. But I, I wonder along those same lines, like how many of your drawers, I don't know if you got to talk to them, um, enjoyed that sort of gotcha moment that you had where you were like, well, actually I didn't introduce that. Cause I, you know, <laughs> that you were prepared for it, you know, those kind of strategy moments, you know, Andy's wasn't in front of the jury, but, um, in terms of stealing the clothes, but that sort of, I think they really like that stuff, you know, the stuff <laughs> that we're just doing to get to what we want to get to, which is, you know, giving the clothes or, or making sure that the evidence gets in or whatever it is. But yeah, I, I think they really like those, those glimpses, um, I, you know, just as much yeah, as everything that's else. A, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, so after the trial, um, some of the jurors stayed behind and talked to us and, and they all, and uh, by the way, I, I tried that case with my colleague, uh, Paul, uh, Ardila, and if any of your audience is into martial arts, he's ranked third in the world in jujitsu. Wow. I always I always give him grief because he's ranked number three and not yeah, number yeah, one. Yeah, but right. only, <laughs> only number three. I don't think I would give <laughs> number three any any yeah. grief because yeah. I'd be worried that he would jujitsu me. It, yeah, it, it might also oh, be could. because he has a day job and the other two are just like full time, you know, jujitsu fighters. fighters. Yeah, fighters. yeah. <laughs> actually, so, I'm um, ranked second. I, yeah, I just had an answer. So he, but he, he, it's so unfair. I mean, he, he, he's, he's very smart. He went to Notre Dame law school and he looks like Superman. I mean, go to his Instagram profile, Paul Ardila, you'll look him up. He looks like Superman. So they, the jurors probably stay behind just to like get a closer look at him and to talk to him. <laughs> um, but, but they did thank me for that, for that comment that I said, and they also thank me for 
you know, trying to keep it light, but, but they did like that. They, they actually yeah. brought that up after the, after the trial. Yeah. So I mean, I, think, I, do, I think yeah, like, I feel like a lot of times when, when you talk to the jury after I know some of the trials I've been in and I, I'm really want to hear, you know, what they thought about the substance of the case, you know, and, but a lot of times they want to know about, you know, like the tech that you were running behind the scenes or how you had the, you know, the deposition, you know, if somebody said something different from their deposition, how you had that stuff ready, you know, yeah. those, those small sort of strategy things, um, yeah. I think are, are way more entertaining for them than, than we think about sometimes. I actually have a good example of that too. Um, at, at a certain point and the jurors all, I think agreed with this, the, the defense counsel in the case just really weren't very good stewards of their time. Um, you know, I was putting up damages witnesses for 15 minutes and they were crossing them for 30 or 45 minutes. But at one point, um, the defense attorney just kept asking the same question over and over and over and over again. And usually at trial, you don't do the asked and answered objection because it really, you know, it doesn't have much of an effect, but you know, I was really getting frustrated just because honestly, I was ready to go home for the day. And, and these questions weren't helping him at all. But and usually you just let him do that. But finally, I, you know, I got up and I, I was very probably a little bit animated with it. And I said, Judge, asked and answered for the seventh time or, you know, how long are we going to be here with this? And the judge overruled my objection. And, and I said, thank you, Your Honor. And I sat down and didn't really think much of it. And then when I talked to some jurors afterwards, one of them said, I was frustrated. And the fact that you were frustrated, uh, you know, I, I, I could feel that, about, you know, about it. And so it was almost like we were we were on the same team in a way. And, and I wish I could say I did that as this great trial strategy. But it just happened to be a thing that one of the jurors liked that I had no intention of that being some, you know, great strategy whatsoever. Andy, when did you uh, come up with the phrase that they weren't good stewards of their time? <laughs> <laughs> that was a very delicate way of putting yeah. wasting I, well, time. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's funny you say that. I say that, um, I said that to the jury, uh, multiple times, even before they wasted their time, which I think is what you're getting at there. But even in, even in, in jury selection, I told them that, I, you know, I was going to try to do my best. And I even said in the defense is going to do their best as well. You know, we understand that you have families and lives to get back to. So it's important for us to, you know, be good stewards of your time. I actually said that in jury selection, opening statement and closing argument. And it, I think it had maybe an effect in the first two, but definitely in closing, it had a huge effect. And I never even said the defense wasn't. I just said, I'm sorry if this is taken longer than you want. And that's when I used the joke about having uh, dirty underwear is because it took longer than I expected to, which the jury, I think, clearly understood why I didn't think it would last this long as well. You're the DMV being like, you guys haven't been good stewards of my time. That's <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. right. <laughs> I like um, it. It's classy, Andy. It's classy. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. I, I like that you were classy and then you went right into the underwear. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll be a good steward of your time. P.S. My underwear. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Um, I, I did, I did want to give you both a chance to talk about just sort of some of the witnesses that you use in order to build your damages in the case. So we, we, we've talked before about before and after witnesses. And so Drew, let's start with you. How did you, uh, really bring home, you know, what your client had been through and, you know, painting the picture of, um, you know, his, his experience and, and, um, and how he had changed. 
Yeah. So we actually didn't have any before and after witnesses. Um, we wanted to call his, his daughter, who was, I think, 17 at the time, but she was in the middle of finals and he wouldn't let us call her. And, and I, I just thought that that's that just showed what kind of person he was. Um, so we one thing I did, though, is I, I uh, that I'll probably, you know, do again. Um, the defendant had a prior car wreck and she got chiropractic treatment. And, and that's all our client got was chiropractic treatment. And that's always, you know, a difficult thing to bring to a jury. Um, but so I, I did ask her, I, I said, so, uh, you know, I understand you got injured and about a month after your injury, you went to a chiropractor and she said, yeah. And I said, so you don't hold it against uh, our client for going to a chiropractor a week after the wreck, do you? And she said, no. And I said, and you wouldn't hold it against him for seeing a chiropractor for a few months, would you? And she said, no. So I, I wanted to um, use the defendant to help, I don't know, establish that chiropractic care isn't, you, you know, barbaric or, or, or you know, just uh, fake medicine. Um, because if the defendant did it, then, you know, it should be good enough for the plaintiff. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a great use of the defendant, you know, you know, cause well, although in your case, you had the, the fact that she was going to uh, blame your client a hundred percent, but I mean, just, you know, get her to agree with the things you can, and it actually bolsters your, your damages. Um, yeah. and, and then you, I, uh, so you did call the chiropractor though, to the stand. Is that right? That that's correct. Yeah. And, and he did phenomenal. It was his first time testifying. Um, Paul did the direct of the plaintiff and he, he did a great job. He actually choked up at one point and you could tell it wasn't, you know, he's not faking. I mean, he, this, he's, he's really been through a lot. So, um, but the chiropractor got to know him and, and talked about how, like, you know, he, he was having trouble participating in sports with his children as a result of the wreck. So he, he was kind of a before and after witness for us. Right. Um, Andy, how about you in your case, what did you, what types of witnesses or uh, evidence did you use to sort of paint the picture of what uh, Tony had been through? Yeah, I, I thought it was really important. Well, we put up the police officer first, but that was five minutes up and down. Defense didn't even ask her any questions. But after that, you know, my case was basically damages witnesses. Um, our clients obviously had to talk about the wreck a little bit, but I started with uh, Tony, the, the husband. I ended with Margaret. And in between there, I had their two sons, a uh, yoga instructor, because they're big into yoga. And the, um, the person who basically ran the special pops program, which is the program for, um, training the special Olympians to play tennis. And, and, um, I'll say one good thing I did and one bad thing I did. Right. So I, I thought that the, the order of witnesses went really well. And I, you know, obviously one juror said that after my client went first, he was already, you know, cheering for us, basically not, you know, he, he obviously could have his mind changed, but I think it would have been very difficult to have that. Um, one thing that, um, and, and Steve, you're probably going to get on to me for, for this, but um, the first son did such a great job with his story. And I felt the jury really did a, a good job engaging with him. By the time the second son was ready to go, and I put him up just before the, the, the wife. And when it was his time to go, I, I really felt that I didn't want to put him on the stand, not because he wasn't going to be good and he wasn't a nice guy and, and didn't know about his, his parents, uh, you know, loss, but I, I felt like we already had that. And, and, and again, I didn't want to, I didn't want to waste the jury's time. 
but he was the only witness and they're obviously sequestered. So they don't get to watch trial. He was the only witness that was there every single day. And now here we are Wednesday afternoon. He's been there Monday, all day, Tuesday, all day, um, Wednesday morning, all morning. And, um, I, I didn't have the heart to not put him up. So I put him up, I put him down and I had a couple of jurors tell me that, uh, he, he hurt my case, not because he said anything wrong, but they, they, they'd already heard from a son. And, uh, why did we need to hear from this, the second son? And, and sometimes you got to make decisions as attorneys that, <laughs> you know, aren't always the nice thing to do. Um, I went the nice guy route. And so, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it would have been a, a $4 million verdict. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and, and I, I, you talk about how great the clients are, but talk a little bit about how Margaret did. Cause I know you, uh, thought she did exceptional on the stand. She was just one of the most, uh, she was just so, so great in so many different ways. I mean, she's just a great person to begin with. And so that made it really easy, um, more so than anyone else. She just, she really, really engaged with the jury. And, and I put the, the, uh, the, the, what do you call it? The pulpit or whatever, um, that I'm at. And I put it right next to the jury. So she had to be looking back at them the whole time. And, in you know, it's funny you talk about like earlier, the woman from San Antonio giving me a good idea. I mean, we had a loss of consortium claim in this case, and that is not an easy thing to talk about with, uh, people in their seventies and eighties. And while we all know that that's more than, you know, the, uh, intimate aspect, um, she asked me the, the, before trial how we were going to address that. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, God, uh, you know, Margaret, usually the way I do it is I say, you know, um, you've lost, you know, the, some physical intimacy. And we, we kind of just talk about it and then move on to the other aspects of your relationship. They're important. And she, she said this before trial. She said, well, can I pose a different idea? And I said, uh, of course you can. And she said, well, our relationship, um, the physical ended when this wreck occurred. And, um, you know, as terrible as that is, it actually made us learn to love each other in a different way. And so the emotional intimacy that we have is actually much better today than it was before the wreck. And it was this way to really hammer home that, yeah, they never had the physical, um, but, you know, and she was actually saying that their lives improved in a way, right. Which you think, you know, kind of doesn't work to your favor for a, a, you know, a jury verdict, but it was just so eloquent and it was so, and it was so true, right. It, it was, it was 100% the truth. And, um, and then, you know, the, the sweet little lady, the other thing she did so well, and this has nothing to do with me, um, was on cross-examination. Um, she was, she was kind of feisty, which I'd never seen that side of her before. And the, the, uh, all of the jurors that I spoke to really just got mad at the defense attorney for trying to beat her up. And, um, but she didn't let him, you know, even his questions weren't always the best, but she, she really pushed back on some things and she was terrific. Yeah. That's always a fine line to walk with is and not that I feel bad for, uh, you know, uh, our counterparts on the defense side, but the, it is always hard to cross examine a injured or, or the spouse of an injured uh, plaintiff. But, um, and you, and it, it, sometimes it can backfire big time. Right. Um, yeah. well, um, I mean, so guys, this has been just, a, 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 I mean, a great talk, especially on, you know, like I said at the beginning on, on cases that most lawyers have, uh, you know, in their office 
and um, and really doing just a fantastic job at uh, maximizing damages. Uh, Drew, let me start with you on the uh, Allison versus Sorrel case. Is there anything that you want to make sure that our listeners know that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Yeah, sure. Um, how much time do I have? It's, I mean, hours. <laughs> it's a, po- it's a right, podcast. Good. There is no hard stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, so literally, I, I, and I, I can't stress this enough. I, I did not want to try this case. I, I, I really didn't. And fortunately, Nick uh, Schneider uh, basically took me to the courthouse kicking and screaming. Um, everyone has this case in their inventory. It, it, it was a chiropractic only case. He stopped treatment in 2018, no treatment until the date of trial. Um, on paper, it's, it's you know, just a, a really tough case and there was no MRI. Um, so the, but what I learned is, is that the orthopedic tests that you always see in your, in the medical records, those can be really important. And, and we actually had the chiropractor talk about how those orthopedic, he doesn't, he didn't need an MRI because the orthopedic tests, he had three positive orthopedic tests that showed he had a disc herniation and nerve root impingement. And so the only purpose the MRI would have served is just to run up medical bills. Um, it wouldn't have changed his treatment. So we used the orthopedic test as a substitute for an MRI. And we actually use like, I like medical illustrations. So we use a medical illustration of a disc herniation. And he talked to the jury about that. Um, so if you don't have an MRI, uh, don't worry. Or, you know, don't worry too much. <laughs> um, I, I always recommend having an MRI. It's, it's, it's hard to, uh, to argue with that, but, um, but you can still, uh, and I wouldn't have believed this before, but you can still get a, a, a good verdict on a Cairo only case with no MRIs. And I, I never would have thought that before. Um, so for whatever that's worth, uh, just don't be afraid to try the case. Yeah. And I was afraid. So <laughs> right. no, no judgment. <laughs> it still turned out great. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. But I, I really do like the way you just hit the, the chiropractic care head on, uh, you know, and, and just embraced it. And then and then of course the way you uh cross-examined the the defendant and get her to agree that chiropractic care is uh a good thing and, and necessary. Yeah. And we also had one other thing we did that I, it didn't help us in this case. Uh, my colleague, Rebecca Ray, she, she's phenomenal with, with technology and she helped us with the visual presentation, but we have a lot of young folks that, that work in our office. And, um, so we would send them the names of the jurors during jury selection and they would do social media searches, you know, nothing on unethical, they didn't like try to make friends with anyone. They just wanted to flag to see if there was anybody in the, in the jury pool that, you know, we needed to know about. Fortunately, they didn't find anything, uh, too damning, but. That's another option if, if you have people at your office um, and you can't, if the, the case doesn't warrant like a, a jury consultant, then, you know, use your staff to help. Yeah, I have to say, so uh, actually some of our paralegals have talked about this in, in seminars, but our, our the paralegals at our firm are really good at uh, at finding information about jurors on social media and, uh, yeah. and they we, it, it's a sort of a scramble. If we can get the, if we can get the, um, the pool ahead of time, mm-hmm. then we'll have everybody, uh, you know, searching, getting as much information. Then after we have our jury, we, we continue to do that. Uh, but yeah, it's in there. They're much better than I, than, than, than I would ever be. Um, you know, so, 
um, that, that can be incredibly valuable. So that's, that's always, that's, that's a good tip for during trials, you know, make sure. Oh, and I do want to say, uh, judge Fortner was amazing and Doug, Douglas County state court. He, he did a great job. Great. So Andy, uh, so in the Wilson versus Evans case, I'll ask you the same question. I just asked Drew, is there anything you want to make sure that our listeners know about that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, well, it's funny, uh, Drew, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I all but begged and it, both of our cases for the, by the way, we're all state, uh, not paying claims, but I, I all but begged them to take the, you know, a, a demand in the case because, you know, frankly, we, we've, we have some, some fairly, um, large, more catastrophic injury cases in our firm, but, you know, I, I wanted to do a good job and I thought that they deserved to get this settlement. But at the yeah. end of the day, once they basically weren't making a reasonable offer, it kind of motivated me to, to, you know, go, go make them pay for it. My clients were really motivated to do that too. And they, it wasn't about the money for them either. But I think the one thing that I learned, if there's nothing else I learned about this trial, um, and, and this would be the one thing is we're in a really special time, I think, as trial attorneys, because uh, as, as terrible as COVID um, was and is and, and you know has been, um, it's taught us, it's taught jurors what loss is like. Uh, it's taught jurors, you know, again, it comes back to these, what feel, what seems, you know, what we take for granted and the things that seem so subtle, um, in everyday life, uh, when you, when you don't get to do them anymore, they seem huge because they are huge. And so I think we're in this, this time right now and who knows how long it'll last. Hopefully it lasts forever, but I, I don't think it will where jurors really understand, um, you know, pretty intimately, uh, these, these finer aspects of life. And so yeah. my case and my clients who had, you know, they were, they're unable to return to many of these things. Um, I don't think that a jury returns this verdict in 2019. And so I think I'm lucky in a way that the case didn't get to trial quickly. Um, yeah. and, and, and I think this is, this can really be, uh, used across, across the board in every case that we have. Yeah. 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 Well, it's certainly, I mean, you know, when you talk about injury and, you know, maybe somebody's stuck at home and how much you miss out on because you can't get out as much. I mean, that that's what a lot of people have been doing for the past couple of years. So uh, it really makes you realize how much you've missed out on, you know, just getting outside. Yep. Yeah. Well, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty insightful, Andy, for a guy in dirty yeah. underwear. Insightful. <laughs> yeah, and he, he and he makes great comments like a good steward of time. You know, sort of, <laughs> yeah. no wonder he got a multi-million dollar right. verdict. I'm, exactly. I'm over here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, many leather-bound books. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> smells of rich mahogany. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, well, let, let me let me remind everybody who who we've been talking to and what we've been talking about. Let's start with uh, Drew Gilliland. Uh, who is a is a senior trial attorney at Nick Schneider Law Firm. And you can look up Drew at SchneiderLawFirm.com. That's S-C-H-N-Y-D-E-R LawFirm.com. And the case that we've been talking about is uh, Allison versus Sorrell. Uh, and it was a $312,000 verdict, which uh, we hope to hear uh, that that's going to be even, uh, even more because he's got an offer of a settlement that wasn't uh, paid. And so he's going to have a chance uh, once he gets past the appeal to go for uh, attorney's fees and costs. So uh, we wish him the best of uh, best of luck there. 
Um, and then the uh, and then we've been talking, of course, to Andy Kahn, a partner at uh, Harris Lowry Manton. Uh, and you can look up Andy at HLMLawFirm.com. And uh, his case that we've been talking about is Wilson versus Evans. And that was a $1,225,000 verdict in Cobb County. So, uh, uh, Drew, Andy, good to have you on, and, uh, and thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.